Hi, this is Cooper from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker, and today we have episode 217 for April 26th, 2021. Man, I can't believe it is almost May. This year is already flying by. Got a few things to catch up on. First of all, the podcast page is back. I don't know what happened. Apple couldn't really tell me what happened, uh, but it's back. So um, the iTunes hosted page that is my podcast page has always been there. But for some reason, there was something weird with the iPod or with the Apple iTunes page. So uh, had to get that fixed. It's now fixed. And luckily, all the reviews that were originally associated with that podcast have come back with it. So. That is awesome. And actually, there's even a new review. So I'll uh, be reading that at the end. If I got a couple of new reviews, which is wonderful, I'll read those uh, on the air here after the interview. So last week, we had part one with our discussion with Cooper Quinton from EFF on Crocodile Hunter, which is the cheeky name he gave to his MZ Catcher Detector. And if you don't recall, MZ is International Mobile Subscriber Identifier. A uh, fancy name for basically a serial number or a special identifier for cell phones. And what an MZ catcher is, or sometimes called a stingray because of the popular version of an MZ catcher that's been, uh, that was probably first publicized when these things came to light, is a cell site simulator. It's, uh, it's a fake cell tower that law enforcement and foreign espionage agents can use to try to snarf up data about cell phones in a certain area. Your cell phone is sort of promiscuous. It kind of tries to communicate with whatever towers it can talk to in an effort to register itself and be a viable working cell phone. Uh, And as part of that process, unfortunately, uh, certainly with some of the older cell site standards like 2G, it gives up a lot of information. And so anyway, these devices are kind of man in the middle attack boxes that can be literally boxes. They could they can be worn in a backpack in a certain area. And if your phone connects to it, it can give up your information and all they've got to do if they, if they know the MZ, the IMSI of your cell phone, then they know that, that you're there in that area. Uh, they may also be able to see that you're making calls or sending texts, and in some cases, maybe even the content of those text messages. So anyway, that was in part one. If you missed it, definitely go back and check out part one with Cooper. Uh, today, we're going to pick up where we left off, and we're going to talk about his Crocodile Hunter project in particular, what he did uh, in sort of a homegrown hacking project, which is really cool, uh, which I really may end up doing myself. Uh, I'd love to make one of these my, on my own. And you could too, and we'll tell you how to do that actually in this episode and in the bonus content. But he created this little device with a software-defined radio and some software that he made himself and cobbled together from other things on the on the web to put together this detecting device, which kind of listens for identifiers broadcast by local cell towers. And, you know, and one of those cell towers starts to move, you know that something weird's going on or... There are other, a lot of other heuristics because the cell, cell phone network is quite quite complicated. And honestly, actually, even if it moves, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's fake. Uh, it's, we're going to get into all that today. One thing we do throw out, a term we throw out in this interview that I want to talk about real quick, is he mentions the term war driving. And that's W-A-R driving. And I actually, I looked this up because I was curious of the origin of the term. And at least according to Wikipedia, which is, of course, not always correct, this came from the movie War Games, and 
he, the Matthew Broderick's character in War Games, if you haven't seen it, is, is a classic movie where he dials a whole bunch of phone numbers in a certain area trying to reach a modem. And of course, back in the day, that's how we got on the internet. So in order to try to hacking computers, he was war dialing, uh, is what he called it, just dialing numbers kind of randomly until he found one that answered as a modem and tried to connect to it. Uh, so in this case, war driving has come to mean driving around and sniffing Wi-Fi network information. And most Wi-Fi networks today are locked down there. Uh, uh, you have to have a password to join them, but that wasn't always the case. And so it was more popular back in the day to kind of drive around and just map out where you could find free Wi-Fi, free unencrypted Wi-Fi that doesn't require a password to connect. And people would share that information. So if someone wanted to get some free Wi-Fi somewhere, they knew where to go. Anyway, so he's, he threw out the term war driving uh, in reference to his uh, crocodile hunter. And I just wanted to quickly define uh, what that meant and where it came from. So anyway, I don't want to spoil any more. Let's get to part two of our interview with Cooper Quinton. And when we're done, I've got plenty more to catch you up on. I wanted to make the point that this is kind of maybe a helpful mental exercise if, to switch the roles and think, okay, you know, I, I, maybe I believe that the cops are always the good guys. And so I'm okay that they have these. But then think about foreign surveillance or foreign espionage. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's There's not any way to say okay only the police are you know only people that we like that we think are good guys are <laughs> right. allowed to exploit these vulnerabilities right. in the cellular network right that's just not possible if those vulnerabilities can be exploited eventually people that you think are the bad guys no matter who you think that is will exploit them right exactly so as long as those vulnerabilities exist you know, you have to be concerned about these technologies. And, and of course, the, the, the further counter argument to that is, okay, well, if these vulnerabilities are going to exist anyway, and they're going to be exploited by, you know, foreign spies and, and, and criminals, right? Why shouldn't the cops also be able to do this? Right? <laughs> why shouldn't law enforcement also be able to do this? And that's a great question. And the answer to that is that, we live in a nation of laws. We live in, mm. well, theoretically, <laughs> we live in a nation of laws, right? We live in a civil society. We live in, in, you know, what is supposed to be a democratic society, right? Where law enforcement can't just spy on anyone anytime for any reason, right? Mm. Um, so if law enforcement is going to use these, I think that there need to be some very serious and proportionate regulations about how and when and why these can be used and what these can collect, right? Like they should only be used by law enforcement to locate a specific phone, right? And they should only be used to locate a specific phone in what are called exigent circumstances mm -hmm. where like, you know, somebody's life is actively threatened, right? Or, you know, like, so like, you know, somebody's in a collapsed building and they need to find them in the rubble of that building or somebody, you know, has taken somebody hostage, right? Or kidnapped yeah. somebody and they need to, to track that person down quickly, right? And they should only be used with a warrant signed mm -hmm. by a judge, right? right. So, so and, and fourth, fourthly, <laughs> um, there should be public accountability yes, yes as to which agencies have these 
how often they are used and what they're used for. Yeah, I, and I would even say that also, you know, they should have data that proves that they're worthwhile using because a lot of times these are, you know, solutions looking for problems and, um, yeah. it, and you know, they, they can be abused so many ways. But what about the, you know, the way you say you're going to use them, have they actually been worthwhile in that pursuit? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, okay, how many, you know, how many kidnapping victims did you save because you had the MC catcher? Is there another way you could have done this that would have been right. just as efficient with far less risk of, you know, of, of violating, violating rights, the yeah. civil liberties of everyone else in the area? Right. right. And, uh, you know, what's, what's more is that we don't know, you know, one of the big unanswered questions about all of these is whether they interfere with 911 service for people in the area. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, sure. the companies that make these claim that they don't. Anecdotal evidence seems to suggest that they do. Hmm. You know, the research and best theories about how they work would seem to suggest that they would interfere with 911. Oh, that's very interesting. So, yeah. But we don't know. And that's actually very concerning, right? right? right. Like it would be really nice if an independent body, right? Uh, uh, you know, a standards body, a congressional body, a, a nonprofit or whatever, me, right. <laughs> um, I'm not, I'm not, this isn't just me angling to right, get right, one right. of these to play with because I really <laughs> want one. Um, but a, a, some independent body should be able to test and verify whether or not it interferes with 911 service, because if these things are interfering with 911 service, that would be a very significant concern. Right. Yeah. Right? So. Okay. So let's get let's get to your research now. And so you built because the because the software apps and the available hardware was well wasn't available uh, to you. Uh, you went to the trouble of actually building a system to monitor these things. T tell us a little bit about. Crocodile Hunter, why why it's called that, and what it can do, and what you did with it. Yeah, so Crocodile Hunter is a open source system that me and my colleague Yamna at EFF built. It's free to download, um, and you can run it on a a laptop from you know probably any laptop manufactured in the last decade. Okay, um, <laughs> I, that's not a promise. <laughs> but um, uh, any laptop running Linux, the Linux operating system should be able to run it. Um, and you have to also buy some special hardware called the software defined radio. Mm -hmm. But this is, we, so we built this because as I mentioned before, all of the existing projects, all of the apps, and we're all looking for the, the, indicators of older MC catchers, 2G MC catchers. Mm -hmm. And what we saw were that there were some really awesome open source projects using hardware to detect these, using again, you know, laptops and and software defined radios. Um, which I'll I'll explain what a software defined radio is in a second. Okay. But there there were some other projects using these. One was called Seaglass, which was developed at the University of Washington. Um, and, and another one is called Sitch, which was developed by a hacker named Ash Wilson. Um, and these were both great projects. And we st started playing with these, but we realized that the problem that they still had was that they were looking, again, specifically 
at the indicators that one would expect from an older generation of MC Catcher. And given that Oakland, which is where I'm at, had just updated their MC Catcher to the newer generation, one that operates natively on 4G, I wanted to be able to detect this newer generation. And I figured that you know a lot of police departments, if not every police department, would be upgrading theirs also to mm. work natively on 4G. So I wanted something that could detect 4G MC catchers natively. So that's why we started building Crocodile Hunter. We liked the hardware side of things. I think you can get a lot lower level data. I think you can ignore the false positives. Plus, you know, I'm a I'm a hacker, right? I want mm. my natural inclination is to build my own thing, right? Because right. I'm yeah. like, uh, this doesn't work the way I quite the way I want it <sighs> right. to. I'll just build my own, right? Mm, right? Why 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 buy a wheel when you can reinvent a new one from scratch? <laughs> um, it's sort of the sort of the mentality that I take, right? But um, yeah, we you know we thought we thought we could take all of the really excellent parts, and this is not to not to trash talk sitch or uh sea glass i think that they're both fantastic projects and they were hugely inspirational to me and the people who worked on them were super helpful in in my thinking about how to design crocodile hunter and in my understanding of mc catchers and detecting and what had been tried before and what had worked and what hadn't so they're both fantastic projects but we could we thought we could improve on them a little bit or add to them sure. by yeah. detecting 4g natively so that's why we wrote crocodile hunter and the reason it's named Crocodile Hunter is so the perhaps the most famous brand name for an MC catcher is the Stingray. Mm. Uh, the Stingray is Harris Corporation. It was Harris Corporation's flagship MC catcher for many years uh, that operated natively on 2G. It's the one you know most people have probably heard of if you say a Stingray, mm. right? Or at least heard the term and have a vague notion of what it is. So the Stingray is the is the sort of the main name that people think of. Well, as you may also remember, the naturalist Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, was killed by a Stingray. Mm-hmm. So because we are hunting Stingrays, because we are looking for Stingrays colloquially, right? We wanted to you know pay it, and because we like Steve Irwin and sure. he was a good Who doesn't? dude, yeah, great. We guy. wanted to pay pay us a sort of. Uh, cheeky homage to him uh and call it crocodile hunter so that's that's where the name comes from we're we're hunting stingrays and, and getting one back for old steve Irwin. <laughs> all right so real quick if you would like i know i because i watched your thing you guys had some really interesting heuristics that you used to determine whether or not you believed there was a, a fake tower and how you mapped them out and where they were kind of walk us through some of the your, the criteria like the things that you used to you know get rid of false positives you know, the, the clues that you looked for. Yeah. So, so to explain this, I should first explain what a software defined radio is because I've thrown that term around a couple of times now, a software defined radio is a programmable transmitter and receiver that you can connect to your computer. So you buy this box and it costs, you know, there are some that only receive that cost you know twenty dollars whereas up to like a really powerful one like some of the ones that i have cost like a thousand dollars right and they're able to transmit and receive at the same time on multiple frequencies right but they are all just a programmable radio you can plug them into your computer write some computer code and you know instruct them to behave however you want they can behave like a you know fm receiver like your car radio 
they can behave like a receiver for the signals that airplanes send out, which is called ADSB, and I can't tell you what that stands for, <laughs> but you can use these things to track which airplanes are in the sky above your house. Hmm. Or they can behave, in my case, like a cell phone or like a cell tower, right? Hmm. They can be programmed to do really anything that any radio you can think of could do. So the way that Crocodile Hunter works is that we have a software-defined radio with some code that lets it scan the general area around my house for as far as you know as far as it can see with with you know depending on the antenna I have and what the what the physical landscape is like but it scans the area around my house for the unique identifiers which are constantly being broadcast by any cellular base station um, so this is pretty analogous to like when you pull out your phone or your laptop and you're, you know, when you go somewhere new, right. And you pull out your phone or your laptop and you open up the Wi-Fi thing and right. select which Wi-Fi you want to connect to. Right. right. Yep. It's, it's kind of like that, right? Like cell towers are constantly broadcasting similar identifiers, right. And your phone pulls up that list of identifiers and figures out, you know, which, which towers belong to your network, right? And which one is has the strongest connection and then connects to that one, right? So we're just getting with Crocodile Hunter that list of all of the towers in the area based on the identifiers that you're sending. For your more technically inclined listeners, this is essentially the same exact thing as war driving. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, it's so that's so that's the first step is we get the identifiers from all the cell towers in the area. And then what we do is look for anything out of the ordinary, right? So we look for towers who's, you know, who have certain identifiers that change over time, right? Or towers where the identifiers seem to be coming from two different locations, right? Mm, a repeated um, or, ID. Exactly. Or towers where the... You know, the signal strength is unusually high or unusually low, things like that. And we can also compare this to public databases of these identifiers. So there's a couple of open source databases of cell towers that are that are generated by... Really? you know, people just walking around with their cell phones, huh. right? There's one called Open Cell ID. There's another one called Will. And so these are, these are you know, publicly accessible. That you got to have an oh, API wow. key, and sometimes you got to pay for them. But they're publicly accessible databases of all of the base stations. They're not all of them, but a good majority of the base stations, you know, in in at least in the U.S., right? And what we can do is look at those, compare what we're seeing, to those databases and say like, hey, here's a base station that seems to have, you know, the ID of, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, and it's broadcasting the, uh, you know, the country code and network code for USA and AT and T, right? And and have people seen that in this area before, right? And and we can query the database for that, and the database might return like, yeah, people have been seeing that tower there since, you know. 2012, 
right? And we say, okay, that's you know that's probably legitimate, right? If we query that and the database says like, yeah, people see that, but they usually see it on the other side of town, right? <laughs> um, or yeah, people, or no, people have never seen that, right? Um, that's never been seen before. Then those would be flagged as suspicious, uh, right? And and you would want to follow up with that and and see what's going on there. And so the other thing that Crocodile Hunter does is that it tries to map out where these towers are actually located. Mm. And this is done through basically moving around. So you, you Crocodile Hunter is designed to be portable. So Technically, what it's doing is trilateration, which is subtly different from triangulation. Okay. Although I think that the details are not actually worth going into. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, essentially, what you're doing is moving around and and like in each point that you stand, you can build like okay, based on the frequency and signal strength of this base station, it's probably about 500 meters away, right? And so then you have like a circle around you of 500 right, meters right. where that could be. And then you move to another point, right? And it's and it's 200 meters away, right? And you move to another point and it's 600 meters away. And where all of those circles intersect right. ends up being roughly where the tower is. And so that's called trilateration. And that's, that's how we figure out where the... But through that process... We we try to map out all of the base stations in the area, so that when you do see something suspicious, like oh hey, this tower only you know nobody's really seen this tower before, or we haven't even seen this tower before, right? We scan this area all the time, and suddenly there's this new tower has appeared, right? We can then look at our map, which Crocodile Hunter produces, of where that tower is probably located and go actually do the legwork, physically try to find it, right? So we can, you know, walk around that area, let Crocodile Hunter get a better and better estimate of where it is, right? And try to eventually hone in on it. And usually we should eventually find it, right? And like, once you do this for a while, you get pretty adept hmm, at yeah. spotting cellular antennas, right? Like me and, me and my wife now, my poor wife, um, <laughs> who, who I've, 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 you know, uh, been been talking incessantly at her about this stuff for the last three years, right? Uh, we now play a game on road trips where, you know, spot the cell tower, right? Because it's the sort of thing that you, you never used to see, right? And now yeah, that I'm right. looking at for them and thinking about them, I see them all the time, right? And so, like, we'll be on road trips and cell tower, oh, cell tower, that fake tree, that's a fake tree, it's a cell tower. Right? Oh, that's so funny so you bring that up because that's so all I used to, when I, I started my career in cellular. I worked for Nortel down in uh, Richardson and so I was doing North American cellular and I, and I, it was the same thing. You, you kind of tune these things out when you see them, but, uh, and then I started showing these things to my daughters cause they're there. We have a lot of pine trees around here, but there's, you know, like mm-hmm. there's one pine tree that's like a hundred feet higher than all the other pine trees. Right. And it's exactly. obviously not a pine tree. Right. It also, it also has a, you know, metal cage around the bottom right. of it. What's up with that? Right. <laughs> pine trees don't normally have rocked right. forts around them by the base of them, do they? Yeah, totally. Uh, so it's, it's, yeah, they're the sort of things that just kind of blend into the background, the back, you know, visual background right. noise of a city, right? Until you actually start looking for them and then you start seeing them everywhere. So, um, but the, uh, 
aside from that digression, uh, coming back from that digression. So yeah, what you do is you go physically look for it, right? And and you find the antenna. And if the, you know, if the antenna is, you know, looks, you know, permanently affixed to a building or a tower somewhere, right? Like that's, you know, that's probably fine, right? It's probably just a new cell, right? Or, you know, if it's, if it, you know, seems to be coming from an apartment block. Okay, somebody probably set up a femto cell, hmm. right? Yeah, right. Um, no problem. Or on the other hand, right, is it on top of an embassy, right? Mm. Well, that's, that's you know, suddenly more suspicious, right? Mm-hmm. Embassies are often, um, you know, sort of the hub for for uh, intelligence work. Right, yeah. Right? Um, so that's suspicious. All the way to, does it seem to be coming from this unmarked van, <sighs> Right. right. Um, uh, you know, and and did the van, you know, very suddenly drive away as soon as I approached it or, you know, did officer friendly jump out of the van? Right. <sighs> um, that would be that would be a much more conclusive argument. So so with Crocodile Hunter, we've tried to really, you know, like there are still false positives, but we've tried to add these features such that you can really go, you know, rule out the false positives by doing the legwork. You can go say, okay, this is not an MC catcher. Okay. This is an MC catcher. Um, okay, and I so can, I can actually tell the story about how that works. If that's sure. Cool. So uh, the first time we tried crocodile hunter out as like a field test was during uh, this big conference that happens uh, while well, it used to happen yearly in San Francisco before the entire world shut down yeah, right. called uh, which is called Dreamforce, And this is the conference for the company Salesforce. Um, oh, okay. If you've heard of them. I have. Yeah. Um, so it's, it takes over basically all of downtown San Francisco and is, and mostly happens outdoors. So me and my colleague at EFF, Dave Moss took crocodile hunter and went down to Dreamforce and started wandering around our theory about this was that Dreamforce, being a big event, would probably expect that they would be overloading cell service in that area and therefore hire some what are called a cell on wheels, which is a mm-hmm. you know mobile a, a truck or a trailer, right? Um, that basically shows up and is a mobile base station, right? And adds capacity to an area for like a festival or a big event, sporting event, whatever, right? Temporary cell tower. Now we thought this is great because what's the difference between a cell on wheels and an MC catcher in the back of a police van, right? Right, right. Well, not a whole lot. Basically, only the intended the the intent intended use, right? They're both cell towers that show up, right? That aren't usually there, and that are you know enticing people to connect to them, or at least are available to be connected to. So, like you know, maybe maybe the other major difference is that they're not actively exploiting vulnerabilities, <laughs> right? But they are still there. You know, they're new towers that show up that are that are trying to get people to think to them and so therefore we should be able to to detect them so we're walking around dreamforce and and running crocodile hunter and we noticed a there were you know a lot of there were actually a a shocking number of cells of base stations in the area um but what we noticed was a small cluster of of suspicious cells on one particular street corner so we started walking down the street and I'm looking down at Crocodile and going, yeah, yeah, this seems to be where they're coming from. I wonder what it could be. And I look up 
and there's a truck in front of me with a giant parabolic antenna, uh, like a satellite dish, mm-hmm. basically, on top of it. And I go, I look up and I go, oh, that could be it. They had a company name on the side, and I, I don't want to say what company it is. Okay, sure. Um, but kind of, I approached the truck and I uh, looked at the guys and I was like, hey, this is a weird question, but I've got this project that I've been working on to detect mobile cellular <laughs> antennas. And would you guys happen? Are you a cell on wheels? Because you look like a cell on wheels. And they looked at me just dumbfounded. <laughs> like they were like, you know, that was not a question they were expecting. To sure. Get, right. And I, I kind of showed them, I showed them the out. And I was like, see, like I, I, you know, detected you around here and this is, seems to be what you're broadcasting. Right. And they're like, yeah, no, you, you, you got us. Like, that's <laughs> okay. Yeah, we are. You know, and I, I, I looked the company up and they're very legit and they had been hired by sales. Okay. Okay. Um, and it's all, you know, it was, it was all good. Um, but they're, yeah, they're, they're specifically a company that provides cells on wheels. They provide extra capacity for, for conferences, uh, festivals and things like that. Right. So we were able to detect them by looking for suspicious things, ruling out false positives, and then, you know, walking around and, and physically locating these things with Crocodile Hunter. So that was, that was our first successful test. Unfortunately, we have not yet caught a cell site simulator in the wild conclusively. We haven't ever caught one where we've then been able to physically track it down and find it. Ah, gotcha. I was, yeah, was going to ask that question. Yeah. We have seen some suspicious things. Uh, unfortunately, we, have, we were not able to track those down successfully, either because we didn't notice the suspicious thing at the time when we were when the event was actively happening or because it it was a short enough event that we didn't you know that we weren't able to actually go find it for whatever reason so yeah unfortunately we haven't had any any actual successes but we think that this sort of end to end test works right we think that our theory is sound right in that we've been able to see suspicious events and we've been able to physically geolocate specific cell towers. And we think that we can put these together for somebody to actually find an MC catcher actively in use one day, because that would be amazing. Like that's my whole goal with this is to find an MC catcher when it is actively in use. Absolutely. Yeah. And if we could, you know, refine this technology, I could totally see this being sort of a crowdsource thing where kind of like speed traps, you know, where you get enough hackers out there around the, around the area to put some of these little things together and you start mapping them out. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like, you know, the reason the reason that I build this is because a lot of people were worried about MC catchers being used at protests, right? And there, there was some, there's a good amount of anecdotal evidence to suggest that this could happen. And, And I think that there was, although we haven't, we haven't not been able to you know, conclusively prove this either with FOIA requests or through technological means, right? But I would love for people to start taking these to protests, right? And and hopefully we don't find anything and we can say, yay, okay, we actually don't think that the police are using these to surveil protests, right? Right. Or not perhaps hopefully, but, uh, or we do find something and then we can say, okay, we have conclusively proven that police, at least in this city, at least at this time, did use an MC catcher to surveil this protected free speech. 
right? Right. And that is that is a huge problem. Oh yeah. If we can prove that, then we can, you know, that gives us the leverage to go to phone companies, to go to you know phone manufacturers, to go to lawmakers and say, hey, this is actually a huge problem. Police are using this to surveil protected speech, to chill free speech, right? And we need to really do something about this right now. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, obviously that's where, you know, groups like, you know, EFF and the ACLU come in, right? So as we wrap up here a little bit, let, let me let me project out into the future a little bit. This definitely... This definitely seems like a typical cat and mouse game with technology. I mean, this almost sounds like, you know, radar detectors versus police radar kind of thing or, you know, you know, or hidden cameras versus hidden camera finders. This arms race between surveillance companies and privacy groups. And who do you think going forward has the advantage in this case? Like, is it easier? I mean, I would think in their case, it'd be kind of hard to mask themselves, though you're already showing that there's several reasons to make it hard to detect. But what who do you think has the advantage here in this arms race? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's hard for me to say who has the advantage, but I think that there are a couple of big advantages on the end of people running IMSI catchers. One is the secrecy involved in all of these things, right? Yeah, like, sure. There's only so much we can know, right? We have to get every, you know, the information right. only comes in dribs and drabs, right? We have mm-hmm. to get it through FOIA requests, through reverse engineering. So they can hide in that for a long time, right? And then the other advantage they have is that the cell phone network is so complex and chaotic that it's easy for them to hide in the noise, right? And there aren't many eyes on the cell phone network, so it can be hard to detect these things, right? The advantage that we have is that in cases where the MC catchers are active, meaning that they are transmitting as well as receiving, there are only so many things that you can, there are only so many techniques that you can use, right. right? There's not, there's not an infinite scope of techniques that they can use, right? There are a few things that work and we think that we know through this reverse engineering, most of those ways that, that these MC catchers could work, right? So we can look for those and they're not, they're going to have a hard time hiding those, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't. I don't think that they are actually really trying that hard to hide them because, as I said, there's not that just just not that many eyes looking at the cell phone network, right? Like, right. And it's as we've already established, it's really not that easy to do. No, exactly. It's not that easy to do at all, right? Um, um, you know, knowing knowing what the sort of landscape of base stations around you is, it is very interesting, but it's not a thing most people right right, right. care to. Uh, care to know or you know could you know it's not it's not easy to know so that's sort of the advantage that we have but that only works in active transmission and and there are mc catchers especially and this doesn't work on 4g but in the 2g landscape there are mc catchers that can work completely passively right where they never transmit a thing and those are much harder to detect there's there's no there are no like proven projects to detect them. There are some theories about how one could detect them based on the harmonics that they give off by receiving a thing mm. um, on a theory similar to, so like you have speed radars, right? And then right. you have radar detectors that mm-hmm. people run in their cars, but then police now have radar detector detectors, <laughs> right? And, and, 
those work by looking for the specific frequency harmonics that that radar detectors give off because oh, of radio physics okay, sure. when they're yeah. received. So you could look for those harmonics of passive MC catchers, theoretically, but nobody, you know, there there aren't even academic papers on it, right? Nobody uh, has has done the projects, and I'm certainly not going to do the project because right. I don't understand it well enough right. to even do that. But I don't think that that's actually a huge threat because in 4G, which is where most people's cell phones are now, and where and where MC catchers want to be at least initially, right? At, at the very least, you have to downgrade the person to 2G. So in 4G, there is no, to our best understanding no way to do this passively you have to be transmitting and as long as you are transmitting you're going to be transmitting things that are unusual that we can right. that we can hopefully detect all right last question so looking ahead in the in, in, into the future what what sort of uh, are there legal remedies being prepared? actually i'd be curious to know if there's already any legal remedies out there that are, that are you know maybe it seems to happen at the state and local level more than the, certainly not at the federal level but are there are there laws, regulations in place that limit the use of these things, or are there some in the works that maybe EFF is uh, uh, working to push? Yeah, so there is a patchwork of laws, and it really, it's really, you know, county by county, state by state, right? There are federal laws governing the federal use of these things, but um, it's it really is a patchwork, right? Like there's no federal laws mm. that describe how your town is allowed to use these. There are some court cases that are you know slowly making their way up to the Supreme Court, and and we'll see what impact those have. But right now, it's really a patchwork. To my knowledge, the 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 state of the laws on it is still pretty patchwork. That said, the laws that we really like at EFF are what's called Community Control Over Police Surveillance, or CCOPS, ordinances. Mm. And these are ordinances, and we have one in Oakland, where basically the idea is that the any surveillance technology that local law enforcement agencies want to buy has to go through a review board of private citizens, right? Mm. It has to go, basically has to go through community review, right? Um, and and has to be you know has to have an audit trail for when it's used, how it's used, why it's used, and this has worked really well. I mentioned that Santa Barbara or you know federal agencies use their MC catchers hundreds of times per year, right? Mm. Oakland uses its MC catcher about three times, right? Uh, and <laughs> wow. I think in 2017 it was two times, in 2018 it was 21, it was one time, in 2019 it was three times. Wow. Something something along those numbers, right? Um, and and I think that this is 100% due to to the community control of surveillance laws that are passed in Oakland. There's actually like a you know, community oversight board. Wow. Yeah. That's that, awesome. That determines what they can do. So these laws really work. Right. And they've really kept Oakland in check as far as only using this MC catcher when it's absolutely necessary in a, you know, severe situation. And Oakland is not the Oakland PD is not known for a 
upstanding and responsible police department, right? There was a whole scandal about, you know, law enforcement officers abusing an underage sex worker. Um, They actually were taken over by an under um, federal stewardship for a while, right? Like because of all the corruption in the department. So like, they're not a great police department Um, and they certainly would not have done this on their own, uh, which just shows that these laws really, really do work. Well, that's that that's encouraging, actually. And so and so if there's anybody out there actually in the audience, listen to this. Um, and, and I don't know uh, the legal aspects outside the U.S. of this work, but at least in the U.S., if it, this, a lot of these things are happening at the community level. There's a lot of anti license plate reader laws or facial recognition laws and things. And a lot of those are cropping up at the city and, and state level. You know, look at some of these examples and maybe take these to your town meetings and, and propose them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I so much encourage people to do that. Uh, you know, think, think globally, act locally, right? Um, yeah. You know, it's, 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 it, it can be really frustrating, um, you know, looking at the inefficiencies of, say, the federal government, right, and how they get nothing done. And, and there's no real way for us as private citizens to really influence. Or it's, it, it can seem like there's no real way, right? You can lobby your senator, but that's, you know, one out of 100 senators, right? Right. Um, but at the city hall level, right, you can really stand up and have your voice heard and you can have a big impact. So I think it's really important for people to get involved in local politics like that. And, you know, I think you can have big impacts on, they can have big impacts on your life and your neighbor's lives and your community's lives, right? Um, And you can really do something at that level. If people do want to get involved with these issues, I really recommend getting involved with the Electronic Frontier Alliance. Yes, yes. Um, So this is EFF's basically way of supporting local groups of people who want to work on these issues within their own community. So there are EFA, Electronic Frontier Alliance, there are EFA chapters all over the U.S. um, in in many different states. Yeah, so you can go to our EFA website and you can look for a chapter uh, in your area and get involved with them. Um, And a lot of them are working on CCOPS ordinances, a lot of them are working on uh, you know, facial, you know, face surveillance, facial recognition ordinances, or license plate readers and things like that. So if that's a concern to you, I definitely recommend checking out the EFA. And that's at EFF.org slash EFA. Absolutely. And and, uh, you can, and if there's not one there, you can start your own too. Uh, there's nothing to say yeah. you can't start yes. your own. Yes, please start your own. If there's not one in your community, we'd love to have you. Well, Cooper, that was absolutely fascinating, and, and you were doing some really cool stuff. And uh, thanks for doing what you do, and thanks for coming on the show and telling us all about it. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for having me. And one last thing uh, I'd like to say is that yeah. if any of the listeners are excited about building their own crocodile hunter, um, I am always happy to support anyone who wants to build one. Um, you can drop me an email or send me a message on GitHub and I'll happily support you and, and help you run it and uh, look at your data with you if you want me to do that as well. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. So thanks again to Cooper for coming on the show and talking about his project. And, you know, thanks for just doing it. I mean, that's a really cool project. It's, honestly, I find it kind of inspiring 
I really, like I said, I would love to build one of these myself. And uh, I've reached out to him about this. And as he said, he's open to people getting emails about this. So if you're interested in doing it, you might want to reach out to Cooper and uh, uh, certainly look at the show notes. You can see his work, uh, find his GitHub project, and which has all the information you need on how to put one of these together. But if you'd like to hear him explain it himself and give you some more tips on how to do this, check out my bonus content on Patreon. And the second snippet I've got from Cooper is him talking about you know, what it costs, what you actually need to buy with like make and model number, uh, what those individual software defined radios cost, you know, why you need this versus that, um, how, how you kind of put one together and use one. So anyway, if you'd like to check out that bonus content, you can of course be a patron on Patreon. I am gearing up for uh, a big promotion regarding Patreon coming up soon with this secret project <laughs> that I keep talking about and never say anything more about. I swear it's got to be almost done. The manufacturing is taking longer than I thought, but that's it. This is one actually one part of a bigger push. I'm going to be offering more things on Patreon as well. So really going to be able to push here soon. Uh, check it out. You can always look at it for free now, of course, and just see what's going on. Uh, but expect that there's going to be some promotions around that soon with this release of this other thing. Uh, which hopefully will be the next, gosh, next week or two. I don't know what's going on but uh, with this manufacturer, but it really should be ready soon. So stay tuned for more information about that. So um, uh, at the beginning of the show, I did say that the podcast is podcast page is back on Apple. It is, thank goodness. And with it came a new review. And it was posted uh, some time ago, but I probably didn't see it because the page has gone down. So let me read this one real quick. It's from Arctic Splendor 13. It was posted back on March 26th, and uh, the title is Great Podcast for Learning About Privacy and Security. And this person says, I have listened now for a couple of years, and I appreciate the way Kerry breaks down difficult technical topics or technical concepts into everyday language. He does a great job of telling me why it's important, too. Kerry interviews interesting guests, and Cooper certainly was one, from a variety of backgrounds, and he prepares me before the interview for any concepts or technologies that might be difficult to understand. Well, that was timely. Uh, I look forward to each new episode. Thank you very much, Arctic Splendor 13. Uh, that was a wonderful review. Keep them coming, folks. Um, I will read them on the air as they show up. They're really, I can't tell you how important those things are. So, speaking of reviews, I also got two new book reviews, which is wonderful. Uh, and I'll just read those quick. They're short, and they're both five out of five stars. Thank you both. First one's from Irving. And he calls it an informative book. He says, I recommend this book for anyone worried about their privacy and security in the digital age. I feel much more competent and able to use the internet and all the apps in much more private and secure way after following Mr. Parker's tips and advice. Thank you so much, Irving. And then Michael B. wrote, uh, this book is extremely well-written and quite specific. Each section includes a number of tips, uh, in quotes, because that's what I call each one, uh, capital T tip, which comprise a checklist, which I'm trying to accomplish one by one. I recommend without reservation. Uh, thank you so much, Michael and Irving. Those are wonderful reviews. And again, so, so, so helpful. Um, I very much appreciate it. Um, I think I also said another way you can help if you want, and you maybe don't want to write a review is if you look up my review of privacy is power on Amazon, it just market as helpful. Uh, again, all these things are really about gaining visibility so I can reach more people. Uh, this stuff is just so important. And my mission is to educate, inoculate as many people as possible against privacy violations and, you know, cybersecurity threats. And the only way to do that is to reach more people. So all this is very, very, very helpful. Thank you so much. Now I'm looking to uh, do some more things. I'm trying to add more value for the podcast, even for non-patrons. And one of the things I'm looking at is doing transcripts. Uh, now that does cost money. 
all these, there's a lot of great services out there and that, but they are not cheap. I, I think most of them are just geared. I mean, obviously if I was a big time podcast making lots of money, then it would be a pittance, but <laughs> you know, uh, not in my particular case. Anyway, I, nevertheless, I'm still thinking about adding this transcripting service and I'm kind of using one now. It does it in an automated fashion, but it does a really horrible job. But if I pay more money, I can get one that's much, much more accurate. And I think actually maybe even, you know, hand tweaked by a human. <laughs> so if that is something you would find interesting, let me know. Send me some feedback. If you're already a patron, you can, you know, let me know on Discord. But, you know, it makes it makes it searchable, for example. Uh, if I mentioned something that I didn't put in the show notes, uh, it, then the transcript would be searchable. So, I don't know. I think that could be neat. I'm just trying to decide whether it's, you know, worth putting the money down on it. So, anyway, looking for that and any other kind of feedback. Anything that maybe some other podcast you listen to does that you think is really cool or would add value to this podcast seriously, I would love to know. You can send me a note at feedback at firewalls.stopdragons.com. I would love to hear your ideas. Speaking of Discord, I learned about a really cool documentary from one of my patrons on Discord, and it was called Digits, and it's on the streaming service CuriosityStream, and you're like, okay, I've got, I'm already paying for enough services already, thank you very much. But this one is actually really cheap and has a lot of really interesting content, especially if you're just kind of into documentaries, which... Uh, I am. I don't spend enough time watching them, but maybe this will change that. I signed up for Curiosity Stream just to watch this one because I think it's like 12 bucks a year if you just want the HD version, if you want the full 4K version. And there are some really nice nature documentaries on there, which you, know, you might want 4K uh, and HDR. And so that's like 42 bucks a year, I think, on sale right now. So anyway, I signed up for 4K and then I watched this Digits. It's a three-part episode kind of about... it's. Actually, it's kind of hard to pin down what the subject is, but it's kind of a combination of history of computers and cybersecurity and some modern cybersecurity and privacy threats. But it was well done. It's in interviewed Edward Snowden, among other people, and uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And there's so many more I want to watch. And it, one of the things, I'll just tell you, one of the things that came out of this that I was not aware of, there is this radio telescope in West Virginia that in order to do its job, needs to have complete radio silence. And so I think for like 100 miles or something in radius around this thing, uh, this area is controlled by, I guess, the U.S. government or whoever owns this telescope. And there is no radio waves, like none. So, I mean, think about what that means. There's, there's no Wi-Fi. There's no cell phones, at least no cell phones that work as cell phones. And so there, there are kids growing up and the, they interview some of these kids at the local high school who don't text each other. I mean, can you imagine today? So anyway, it's, it's really interesting. I don't, I don't know even what to compare it to. It's really an interesting kind of a sociological experiment more than anything that this area in West Virginia, it's called Green Bank. There are no radio signals, period, end of story. And what that means for modern life in that area. So anyway, that was all part of this Digits documentary. And, you know, as long as I bring up documentaries, uh, I haven't done this in a while, and I thought I might recommend some documentaries you might want to watch around cybersecurity and privacy. Uh, you can find these. I've got a resources page on my website, firewallstonestopdragons.com. You can find these listed there. I try to keep that up to date with not just documentaries, but books and websites and other things. But, and I've said these before, but real quick, uh, if you have not watched The Social Dilemma or The Great Hack, both of those are on Netflix. Highly recommend both of them. In that order, I think if you're going to watch just one, certainly Social Dilemma is probably the one that you would watch first. But The Great Hack is also important. I don't think it's actually as well done a documentary as The Social Dilemma was, but uh, it still brings up some very important issues that we need to uh, address as certainly as a nation, if not as a society. 
There's also one called Terms and Conditions May Apply. And the last I checked, you could find that on Amazon Prime. It was kind of hard to find for a while. Hopefully it's still there. But that's another really, really well done documentary about, you know, all the things that we blindly agree to when those pop-ups come up for terms and conditions and what, what we're really signing on to and the privacy nightmare that is social media. So again, another great one to watch. And then citizen four is the actual documentary, like the, not the movie adaptation, but the actual documentary of Edward Snowden with Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras and some other journalists that helped him expose the NSA's mass warrantless surveillance programs. And it, it, so this is actually at like, as it happened, as Edward Snowden was fleeing the country to China and then to Russia, trying to get this information out and how he struggled with his own cybersecurity, his own physical security, and with what he was doing, what he was releasing. And, and anyway, I found it fascinating personally. Uh, the book on that is called No Place to Hide. It was written by Glenn Greenwald. That's also a good read. Um, but we're talking documentaries here. So two more, and, and I'll quit. One is called Zero Days, and one is called 2600. And these are both about hackers. And again, hacker is not a is not a inherently bad thing. I mean, it, and that's what these kind of documentaries sort of expose. Well, not expose, but uh, relay to the viewing public is it's really just a different mindset. And, a, and it's really kind of fascinating just to get in the mind of the hacker and, and see how they think and why they do what they do and some of the things that they have done in that you know, in that vein. So anyway, those are interesting hacker documentaries. If you're at all curious about the hacking community and, and how it kind of came to be. I, oh, in fact, I think, I think I mentioned this in the interview with Cooper Quinton, maybe it was in part one about the Captain Crunch whistle. And I guess even if I didn't mention it, that's an interesting story about phone freak. Oh yeah. That's about phone freaking. And that's kind of how he got into doing what he did. That may have been one of the patron bonus content things, but anyway, uh, this, <laughs> uh, one of those two documentaries, I'm sorry, I can't remember which off the top of my head talks about the old captain crunch whistle and how it was used to make free long distance phone calls back in the day. Well, so there's, there's a little teaser for you, uh, that may get you to watch one of those hacker documentaries. All right, real quick, future shows. Next week, got a big, big news show. Man, there's just been so much stuff going on. We're going to talk about Apple's new AirTags and the privacy stuff around that. They did a really interesting job designing that. Uh, we're going to also talk about the FBI hacking company computers with a warrant from some judge. I don't know who could even sign off on that, but basically this SolarWinds slash proxy logon issues were so bad that the FBI decided to hack the computers before somebody else hacked them, or actually, in many cases, hacked them after they've already been hacked, using the same vulnerabilities to unhack them. That opens up some really interesting uh, philosophical debate. Um, so anyway, I'll be talking about that next week. There's also been this story running around about a major privacy leak with Apple's AirPlay that I don't think really is. But anyway, I'll, I'm going to dig into that a little bit more and tell you about it next week. Lots Lots of new stuff to talk about, and uh, we'll do that in next week's new show. And then after that, I've got a really fascinating interview with Allison Macrina from the Library Freedom Project and how librarians are out there on the front lines every day defending our rights to access to information and our privacy along the way. There's, It, it was a great, great interview, and that'll come up after the new show. Lots more interviews in the works, a uh, couple in the can, plenty of stuff uh, coming down the way. So... Subscribe if you already have not done that. Uh, leave a review if you haven't done that. That would also be very helpful either for the book or the podcast or both if you want to go crazy. I will read those on the air. 
get out there, get those shots, help others to get their shots as well. Let's all get that herd immunity going and get back to normal. I am so ready for normal. Oh, I'm thinking about going to DEF CON this year. It's going to be, looks like it might be a hybrid. DEF CON, I'm sorry. DEF CON is the, one of the two big U.S. really global hacker conferences. De, uh, Black Hat is the other. They go on at the same time, usually in Las Vegas. And uh, I've been wanting to go to DEF CON for a long time. And I'm going to hopefully go this year. I was going to go last year as my part of my bucket list. I was going to check that off last year. And then, of course, COVID hit. And so, anyway, I'm hoping to go this year. We'll see. If I do, uh, I will definitely get some content from DEF CON. That'll be fun. Okay, sorry. Let's wrap this up. Take care, everybody. Get those shots. And until next week, everybody, stay safe out there. And don't get caught with your drawbridge down.